Today we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And the last time we looked at the victorious resurrected life, uh, we saw that the resurrection of Christ was really the seal of authenticity of every teaching that he had given. You know, I'm gonna, I have to die on the cross, I'm going to be delivered by sinful men, it's for your benefit that I go to the cross, you have to believe in me. And he said over and over again, but on the third day I'm going to rise again. Now, for all the other claims to be valid and to be believed, the resurrection had to be happened. It had to happen. So if you weren't here last Sunday, just get it on the website and uh, check that out. We also see that Christ is the template for us to live today, the victorious resurrected life. We're eternal beings. So we have this big, this really misunderstanding that when we die, everything becomes so different and a lot of us fear death. We are already eternal beings. And if we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we're going to be with, with him for eternity. So it only gets better from here. You know, uh, Jesus Christ said, I came to give you all life and, and that more abundantly. Uh, we don't have to live in defeat here as believers. We can live in victory. Uh, it's only a lie from the enemy to tell us that we're worthless and, you know, there's nothing for us and we have to live in defeat. That's not true. So I urge you to get last Sunday's message. And today we're going to jump into the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy. Now, I want to give you a little overview, like a who, what, where, why, when. It's kind of good when I was in grade school. They, my teacher taught me well with that to help our, your audience understand what we're reading. Why are we even reading this? Well, who? The uh, Apostle Paul is writing to young Timothy, pastoring a church in Ephesus. Uh, Paul takes Timothy, a little younger, while uh, he's doing missions work. He disciples him, and he knows he can now trust them because he, because he has personally discipled him. So he uh, feels that he's worthy to oversee this problematic Ephesian church. When? Roughly A.D. 62 through 64, based on internal and external sources. Where? Ephesus. Well, most of us don't know where Ephesus is, but it's if you get a, a map of the Middle East area in Europe, Ephesus is really now the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And Paul was writing from Macedonia, which would have been, or which is, modern-day Greece. So if you look, I believe it's is it the Adriatic, there's a sea that separates those two, uh, part of the Mediterranean, and it's uh, a 300-mile uh, distance between young Timothy and his his father and the Lord Paul. Now, understand for us, well, we Skype people overseas and we have email and voicemail and Facebook and iPhones, but they didn't have any of that back then. So it was, it was hard. When Timothy got that letter, I bet he jumped for joy. He probably did cartwheels, and after he was done doing that, jumping jacks, and after he was done doing that, he memorized the letter because it was very important to him to get this letter. Now, why? Well, Timothy's having a hard time with this difficult church that the Apostle Paul and God placed him in. Now, understand that we are placed in certain things ourselves. We may be in difficult situations. We may be in a challenging uh, work environment. We may be in a difficult family situation. Uh, and sometimes we don't like where God places us. But let me encourage you, if you're going through that right now, that God considers you faithful. He, he believes that you can do that, that you're dependable. I find that the more challenging situation that I'm in, I take that as a compliment from God because he, you know, I, he, I've got his backing. So think about that next time you're in a uh, difficult situation. But what were the problems in this Ephesian church? Well, difficult and immature people, false doctrine, irreverence, 
and influence from a surrounding pagan city. And Paul also wanted to make sure that Timothy stays faithful, honest, and doesn't succumb to corruption. And what this boils down to is instruction and encouragement. It wasn't an option for Timothy to fall apart. It wasn't an option for him to flee. You know, some say, well, the church is supposed to be a hospital. And sometimes that can lead to coddling. But if you look at the terms that Paul uses, and if you know your Greek, he uses a lot of military terms. Soldier, pick up your pack. There's work that has to be done. The battle is not all over. Now, it doesn't mean we are harsh with each other. As a matter of fact, Paul was encouraging, and he emboldened and strengthened him. And that's a good template for us today, when somebody's struggling, to embolden them, to strengthen them, to let them know their worth in the Lord, and that we can rely on him, and we'll get to that. So... The Apostle Paul also left Titus to minister in Crete, and there was some fruits of discipleship there. And I'll tell you what, my desire, and I'm going to ask some questions during this uh, teaching in First and Second Timothy, my desire is to raise up young pastors or pastors and send them out, like Paul did. It would be, give me such great joy, and it would be a milestone in uh, my uh, calling as a pastor to send a man out and bring him up here, lay hands on him, and have him start another church. That would blow me away. I know my pastor still looks at the situation with me, and he, he looks at it as very affectionately. He, he loves that. So that's what I would like to do. Um, I will say this, though. I think technology has done a little bit of the body of Christ a disservice. You know, I talked a little bit about churches that have a, uh, a feed, cable feed, maybe live streaming, and they have satellite churches, and they pump their images onto a screen. So if you're going to the satellite church, you look past the pulpit, you see a screen, there's no person up here. There's no interaction, right? Now, furthermore, some of them actually pre-record their sermons with the, with the camera, and if they make a mistake, they go cut like they do in Hollywood and retake it. Well, I could be flawless, too, if I did that as well. But I don't see the Apostle Paul. Don't tell, tell me if, as a pastor, if you've got 50 men in a church that you can't find one man to disciple and send him out, I just think that's an ego issue. And I think the Apostle Paul had the right attitude. And even if there was live streaming back then, I don't think Paul would have used it. I still think he would have sent out Timothy and Titus because that's what the Lord wanted him to do. Now, in the next few Sundays, you may be challenged. Uh, if you're a new believer, just sit, relax, and enjoy the Lord. Read your Bible, pray, and get to know God. Let me put the new believers aside. If you've been a Christian a long time, you may be challenged about discipleship. You may be challenged about accountability partners. You may be challenged about whether you're even being discipled. Do you have any accountability in your life? This message may rub some the wrong way. And some may listen to it, and they may be convicted, and they may get on board with what God is trying to do. So we'll see. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. First few verses pack quite a punch. And we have to go through this from the perspective, remember, from looking through the glasses of a difficult ministry. However, there are applications for us as well in whatever situation we're in. So Paul is an apostle because God commands him. Now listen, we all love the scriptures that tell us that we're loved. I do. I love the scriptures that where I could look in the mirror and maybe not what I lo- like what I see, but God loves what I'm seeing in the mirror because he made me. 
So it, it kind of lifts me up. But there are also those scriptures where we're commanded to do certain things. If we've been a Christian for a while and maybe we're tending to get stagnant or lazy, a commandment. Right? We all have a divine mandate in our lives. We all have spiritual gifts. If you've been a believer some time, have you prayed? Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Maybe it's time to say, go home and say, you know what, Lord? That was a good question. What are my spiritual gifts? What is your desire? What is your plan for my life? Because he has a plan for every one of us in our lives. It's that purpose that drives us, right? That, that grows us, that matures us. And in, in, in Timothy's case, it was tough. But in his case, what he had to realize was, why do I do the things that I do? Because if it's for feedback from the body, well, then that's a popularity contest. What Timothy had to see here is that this is a higher calling, not a popularity contest. Number two, he says, Jesus Christ, our hope. Now, Paul, it's as if Paul's saying to Timothy, listen, I can't be there right now. And there's nothing around you in the material world that's going to help you. You must, you must find your hope in the Lord, period. Even today, Hope, there's hope in everything but the Lord. As a matter of fact, our president successfully ran on the powerful word of hope. There are some words in our vernacular that carry quite a punch, and hope is one of them. But I've got news for you. It's not going to be in a pastor or a president or a government or a congress or anything earthly. It has to be in the Lord himself. And we're even looking at some of the incidences in the younger generation, whether it be the London riots or the recent Penn State riot where they turned over a news van or the Occupy Wall Street. These young people are angry. They're frightened, probably inside, and then they're covering it with anger. But they are looking for problems or answers in the wrong places. I will tell you, I submit to you that those are a bunch of young people that have been undiscipled. Where are the disciples? You know, do we pray? I tell you what, even on the job as a police officer, I run into a lot of youth, and a lot of them don't have father figures. And I do the best I can to, you know, because I, I enjoy that. I enjoy uh, that type of discipleship, that mentoring. And he, I, me as a young kid, when my parents were divorced, the same thing. I, I was looking for a father figure. It's so important in our society and so lacking men pray about who the Lord would have put in your life that you could disciple. It's very important. Three, he says, Timothy, my true son in the faith. This is a term of endearment. This is an emotional bond between the Apostle Paul and young Timothy. And we saw that in 1 Samuel 18 with Jonathan and David. And in in our uh, understanding, in our culture, maybe that sounds a little weird. But I submit to you, they have it right. That was the right way to do it. Because even without a father or a good uh, uh, mother figure, a certain person who's a disciple, who's a man or woman of God, will help that young person grow into the right things. I got married. My parents were divorced. My wife's parents were divorced. The first year, we thought, hey, two Christians are getting married. This is going to be great, wonderful marriage. The first few years were very difficult. (laughs) You know, I didn't know how to be a man. I didn't know how to be a husband. I didn't know how to be a father. Right? That stuff is, it doesn't just happen. It has to be poured into you, you see? Um, I remember, too, my, one of my mentors, he's now a pastor, Pastor uh, Luis Solis of Calvary Chapel Corny. He would say to me, and he had two kids, he would say, Joey, I couldn't love you anymore if you were my own son. He would say to me, Joey, I see things in you that you don't yet see, that the Lord has shown me. And I'll tell you, through the tough times, 
That really made an impression on me. You know, I, I maybe, be, you know, maybe I had a certain facade or a way about myself, but inside, he was able to break through those walls. And I needed to hear that. And you know what? He said, this is God's plan for your life, and he encouraged me. And even through those really hard times, I still remember his words, and he would say them over and over. And the man loved me like a father. Uh, so it's, it's, it kind of makes ministry even a little easier when you can count on somebody who's gone down that road. Now, again, the context or the, the paradigm here is the framework of difficult ministry, but we can apply this to many facets of our life. The fourth point, he says, grace, mercy, and peace, not from the Apostle Paul, but from God himself. Why is that important? Because grace, mercy, and peace are supernatural endowments. You know, these are things, listen, a disciple or a mentor has to know what their limits are. There are certain things that we cannot provide. There are certain times that we'll be discipling someone and say, listen, at this point, it has to be from the Lord. This is out of my realm. It's out of my hands. I'm here for you. I'm an ear for you. But this is something you have to get from God. Supernatural endowments. So we have grace, which is salvation for sinners. And mercy. We usually know what mercy is in a negative sense. But mercy also has a positive aspect. Mercy, an act of kindness or to relieve suffering. Peace is the tranquility that comes from the first two. Grace, mercy, and peace. And when we serve God, sometimes, listen, you, you know, you, you step up to serve God and it becomes all of a sudden difficult. I don't understand that. Well, I'll try my best to explain it, but there's uh, Warren Wiersbe in his book, Be Faithful. I love this portion of scripture, or this portion, not a scripture. Scratch that. <laughs> See? Cut. Let's retake it. <laughs> you like that. And I don't even do that for the website. All the mistakes are on there as well. People get it. He says this, If Jesus Christ had advertised for workers, the announcement might have read something like this, quote, Men and women wanted for difficult task of helping to build my church. You will often be misunderstood, even by those working with you. You will face constant attack from an invisible enemy. You may not see the results of your labor, and your full reward will not come until after all your work is completed. It may cost you your home, your ambitions, even your life. Well said, Wearsby. I couldn't even paraphrase that. I had to read it in its entirety. Listen, when you raise your hand to, and, and if we're not understanding, if you're not born again yet, some of this stuff may seem, ah, what is this, Satan stuff? You really believe in the devil? And you, you, your eyes are not open to spiritual things yet. Uh, when you raise your hand and say, I want to evangelize. I want to bring people into the kingdom. I want all my family members to know the Lord. I want everybody I know and love to go to heaven. And you, you stand up, and you start doing that, and you become effective. Well, you start to attract negative attention, hate to tell you. Because Satan will say, oh, I see you. Oh, I see you on my radar, so you want to serve God. Well, take this, relationship problems. Take this, financial problems. Let me hit you with a few fireballs and see if you still want to stand up and do this. That's his attitude. He prowls like a roaring lion, seeing to, to whom he may devour, especially those new people that decide to come up and they're excited for the Lord. He's going to come for you. But we have a greater advocate. Right? We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Lord. So, Timothy's being bolstered by Paul, spiritually, psychologically, and he's giving it an emotional foundation prior to getting his, his marching orders, which we're going to cover now. Verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, 
that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. So as if he was saying, Timothy, here are your marching orders. You need to stay in Ephesus. You must. And I know I can trust you. And I know the church has problems, but you're going to do well. Number one, command that they teach no other doctrine. As soon as God's church started, it was immediately attacked by the evil one. Satan tried to poison it with weird doctrine. A lot of that weird doctrine existed back then, and it it exists today as well, kind of like recycled. Satan, he likes to recycle too. He takes old heresies, and after a few hundred years of being ignored, he'll recycle them and put them out under a different name. That's just what he does. And there are some today that uh, I've even from the pulpit named names and quoted some of them, Uh, whether it's Harold Camping for the fourth time in October, the end of the world. Finally, he's going to say he's going to stop doing it. We'll see. All right. Many, many believe that. And I said, don't believe that. The guy's a false prophet. You know, guys who do that are weird. And ladies do it as, as well. Rob Bell saying that hell doesn't exist in his book, Love Wins. Sounds like a very sweet book, right? Very ministering to me. Love Wins. I should read this book. There's no hell. He's a universalist. The book The Shack was the same way. I just quote their own stuff. The emerging church, some of the doctrines in there that are flaky. Uh, you can't deviate from the word. And if you do, there may be something good in it from you. See, if a guy goes, Rob Bell, he's kind of, I've seen him on interviews. Boy, the guy's kind of wormy. I mean, he's, he really loves the limelight. He's, he's got a bestseller. Uh, he's making a lot of money off this book. Well, I hope he enjoys it now because it's not going to be good for him in the afterlife. Right? But the bottom line is you can make a name for yourself. You can say, I'm different. I don't have to follow God's word. That's a stuffy church. They just talk about the Bible. Come over here. Let me show you something new that no one's ever said before. All right? So be careful of that. I, I liken it to my, um, my bees. I have three beehives, and I'm trying to care for them in the winter because, you know, you've got to keep them warm and keep the wind from blowing and such. Uh, so they, at this time of the year, other bees from other hives try to invade the hive. Some of the predators of the bees, they try to get in there, you know, the yellow jackets and other things. And they're always on the lookout to treat, see where they can find an opening and get in there. But the guard bees are always, they're like sentries. That's why they call them the guard bees. They stand on guard, and they're constantly keeping the invaders out. They're trying to maintain the integrity of the hive. And I've seen them. They'll all gang up on a predator and sting them to death. But <laughs> in a church, we can't let weird stuff get in and spread. According to the Apostle Paul, no way, don't do it. Timothy, keep your guard up. Right? Don't let this stuff get in. And two, he says, don't give heed to fables. Or in the Greek, it's muthos, where we get the word myths from. And endless genealogies. And again, there was a, there was, um, a speculation back then. Uh, you know, I read the book of Enoch. Um, it's not, not necessarily a canonical book. I've read all the apocryphal books, and it really doesn't do anything to the gospel. There's all this mystery surrounding that. So today we could look at, well, the book of Enoch or the Pseudepigrapha, the Apocrypha. I've read all those books, the Gospel of Thomas, Bell and the Dragon, Maccabees, big deal. It does, doesn't change the gospel, but there's a lot of mystery that surrounds it. So back then they had their same problems. And Paul says this only leads to arguments instead of building up the church. These people just want to come in and lead you down nonsensical rabbit trails. God's desire is for his church to grow and mature in the truth. And Satan's desire is to get the leaders distracted from doing real ministry. And it's very important to know the difference. Somebody may come up and they have questions. They really want to know. I'll answer their questions all day long. 
But there's some who come up and ask questions, and they're framed in such a way that it's, 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 it's an argument. Well, if they answer it this way, it's like verbal judo. Well, I'll answer it that way. And, you know, it's, it's more of a, they want to get you in a trap than really understand, you know, show me that the Bible's real. Show me these things are true. Talk to me about what you've, you know, what is your evidence? I'll provide it any day of the week. But, you know, to just trap in, in these, these verbal altercations, uh, it's just a waste of time. Verse 7, or 5. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So this is a little digression to the purpose of the commandment or the divine mandate. What are we supposed to be doing in the church? What is a person coming in if, if their heart is in the right place? How do they behave themselves? Well, from a pure heart. That which desires to save the lost and edify the saved. Let me say that again. To save the lost and edify, build up and strengthen those already saved. Not leaving them in that infantile stage spiritually, but building them up. Giving them the, the milk of the word first and then the meat and watching them grow. That's exciting. Uh, from a good conscience. The Bible says some have their, their consciences seared. Um, if you ever do a study on, sadly to say, serial killers, they start small. And it's the, tru- it's the truth. And whenever they're uh, analyzed psychologically, torturing animals, uh, hurting people, maybe the, the weaker in our society, and then they start graduating to really sick things. But what happens is over time, their conscience becomes seared. So put them aside. As believers, we know, because we also have the Holy Spirit helping us as well, uh, what the truth is. When we come into a fellowship, do we want to love the lost and bring up the saved and grow ourselves? Or are we just looking to, it, it's in it for us. You know, what can we do? What, how can we shine? How can many, uh, you know, draw attention to me and I can lead a following? So you've got to look at that. And from a sincere faith, again, if a person is truly saved, their desire is what God's desire is in the scripture, not their own desires. Verse 6, he said, some have strayed from this, this paradigm or this model, into ungodly pursuits such as, number one, idle talk. Talking to hear yourself talk. No substance, no edification value. You ever hear someone speak, and maybe even politicians, you know, they, some of them, there's a lot of good politicians, uh, professors, I know I'm really now stereotyping here, uh, but the bottom line is somebody who just stands there and there's platitudes and they gesticulate and they pontificate and they, you know, say big words and they, uh, it, it's really a goal to get others to, it, it's a whole, there's a certain philosophy, this empty philosophy, there's a, uh, even a Socratian philosophy, different philosophies that get someone to do these things and have these verbal discussions and you captivate an audience. And this was popular back in biblical times. A person would go from city to city and use their oratory skills to gain a following, not really saying anything, and then people would give them money. This is how they made a living. So idle talk. Remember when I said that every word uh, in the Bible has a purpose? Remember when I said when God speaks, he doesn't speak for hearing himself speak? There's always a purpose behind it. Okay, so, so look at that. And two, these guys come in, they're desiring to be teachers of the law. Well, it sounds good, and it sounds weighty, but they're not even sure what they're wielding in the law. And there are some that will come in even, and I I shared this years ago, I had a ministry application, and we needed help with cleaning, we needed help with ushering, we needed help with child care. The guy didn't want to do any of those things, but what he said was, 
If I ever go on vacation, he's that good that he'll come and fill in for me on a Sunday. <laughs> that's, that's a big ego. I mean, that's really, you know, there's a word for it to, to do that. Um, but you want to be a teacher, pick up a sponge. You know, wipe the runny nose of a child. Be a servant leader like Christ did. Some want the authority without being faithful, and others can't make it in the world as leaders, so they make it in the church, and they, they manipulate gullible believers. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no way. I don't want that stuff in there, Timothy. Do the right thing. Verse 11, or 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly, the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So the gospel was too simple for these guys. You know, um, I'm going to tell you the truth. You guys come in here Sunday after Sunday. One Sunday, I'm not going to start breaking out a light show and pyrotechnics and, you know, I'm not going to bring best-selling books up here and wow you because, you know, the New York Times has it at the top of the list. I really don't care. That's not what you go to church for, you know. The gospel is simple so that the, even the, the, the least educated among us, the, the simple among us, can get to heaven without the help of someone else, only Christ. Right? So the gospel is simple, and it needs to stay that way. But these guys were making it complex. Uh, I have a friend who's a pastor. He's Jewish, and he's in the Messianic movement. And we were having lunch, and he said to me, Joe, the Judaizers are back. After 2,000 years, they're coming into the Messianic churches, which is like Jewish believers, but they, they're Christian, but they still maintain a lot of the Jewish culture. And he goes, I'm fighting the good fight because they're trying to bring us back on the bondage of the law. And he goes, and so I'm, I was like, wow, I'll be praying for you. I didn't realize that. What does the law do? Galatians 3.24 tells it best. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. See, there's different, different dispensations. You know, how did God deal with his people during the time of the law? But when Christ came, we're in the dispensation really of the church age or the age of grace. The law is good. The law shows us that we have fallen short. The law shows us that we have a need for a savior and we need to be redeemed. Before Christ in the children of Israel, in, in the, uh, the Jewish culture, they had the temple and they had the sacrifices. So everybody knew the law so that they could see that they couldn't get to God on their own merits. They had to go through that sacrificial system. Then when Christ came, right, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and that whosoever, anyone, anywhere, any culture, any language, any part of the planet would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, through him the son, the world might be saved. It's beautiful. So I read the law. You know, to an unbeliever, I read the Ten Commandments, and they probably say, well, I, I haven't done most of these or maybe one of them, or I haven't done any of them. And like Jesus said to the religious leaders, yeah, but if you've... If you've, you know, desired to hurt someone, even though you didn't commit murder, you've done it in your heart. So the law shows me I'm not perfect. Well, how do I get to God? And that's where Jesus comes in. So it, it brings us to Christ. It ushers us. It's like a merge lane. It keeps merging you until you're right in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's where it is. That's what the law is supposed to do. 
In verse 9, he says that the law is not for a righteous person. Now, understand this, that the, the righteous are justified by faith. So in other words, once saved, the law is not for us. Now, we don't look at the law and say, I have to keep all these, and, and then I'm going to go to heaven. Christ already died for our sins. He already died for us breaking those laws. But what the law does now is if I look at the law, I say, you know what? I love God. I'm not afraid I'm going to go out and murder somebody, but, but I wouldn't want to because I know it would not please God. And he asked me to love other men. I don't want to steal. I don't want to steal from anyone. Not because I'm going to be condemned, because I can repent and I'll be fine. But because it, it's not good. It, it hurts God's feelings. You know, I shouldn't behave like that. So the law really has a different application now. It's not to condemn us anymore once we're saved. The law is the diagnosis and the gospel is the cure. See, the righteous don't need the law to try to live better. We have the Holy Spirit for that, right? Paul has often said, you know, what was made perfect in the spirit, you're trying to complete in the law. You look at his letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. You know, you guys shouldn't be doing that. I mean, in, in this dispensation of grace, we have the Holy Spirit. So if I desire to live a better life, I don't sit at, look at the law, try to memorize them, and try not to step out of the line. What I do is I try to employ help from the Holy Spirit because he's always there in the dispensation of grace. Right? Now, these uh, lists of sins are not exhaustive, of course, but again, it shows us that even if we thought about doing these things, we've committed sin in our heart. And maybe there's somebody here today that, you know, as you're reading the word, it's working on you. The word is powerful. Maybe today may be your day to say, you know what, I've come to the conclusion, Pastor Joe, after reading this book, that I am a sinner, and I need Jesus. And I want to admit to him that I am a sinner, repent, try to change my life, but only with the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And there you go, it's that easy. Now, there are some that are uh, modern-day Judaizers that... Uh, again, you may run into a group that preaches above, above your head. They're very heady. And they uh, make, it's almost like the Gnostics. They make the Bible so difficult that you have to go through their church or their teachings to understand it. I just quoted to you John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's simple. Right? I mean, what does it take? Well, yeah, okay. Yeah, this is what I want. It's, a, it's an act of the will. Verse 11, and in all this, in the end, he says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. Paul was trying to say to Timothy, listen, this is not about me. It's not about me and you. It's not about what I learned before Christ. This was committed to me. This is a mandate from God. This is why I do what I do, and I do it joyfully. Right, so this isn't my opinion and, and, and in the scripture, he actually does do that at times, says, uh, but this is what I, I believe versus what the Lord says. And I like to do that as well from the pulpit. If I'm explaining something, and I'm not 100% sure, but this is what I think, please, it's just my opinion. Take it with a grain of salt. I don't care if you believe it or not, because it's not sacred scripture. Understand the difference. Again, he says, committed to my trust. Now, the word is ego in the Greek, which means I or me, first person singular, personal pronoun. But what he's saying here is it's translated to my trust because God has committed it to the apostle Paul. He took him as an apostle. He went through the entire known world. He went through Europe. He went through Turkey. He sailed the seas. 
I mean, this is just what God had for him, and he just loved doing it. Uh, starting churches, ministering, writing letters, doing miracles, uh, and, and this was God's mandate to him. Now, trust is a very important word. God is going to entrust certain things to us, and he's going to ask us to be faithful to disseminate those things to others. Now, when I, I say that word trust, because in our society, especially with the way the economy is, there's scams, there's people trying to trick each other, rip each other off, uh, you know, all kinds of crazy things are happening today, and scams are getting worse. So there's really an issue of trust in our society, isn't there? But when I say the word trust, who comes to your mind? Do you have someone you can trust? Is it just one person? Is it no people? Right, pray about that. And then ask the question, am I trustworthy? If God entrusted me to disciple somebody, would I do it faithfully? Or would I do it from my, my slant, my, uh, my uh, perspective? So trust. Am I trustworthy? Am I faithful? Verse 12. Last few verses uh, for this chapter, and then we'll continue it next Sunday. He says, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, putting, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although, now this is the Apostle Paul's testimony of his former life, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ came Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might obtain or might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So why does the Apostle Paul uh, delve into this past of his? I think, again, for number one, encouragement. Basically to say, if he could save me, he could save anyone. <laughs> I mean, we love the Apostle Paul 2,000 years later. We, his, his words ministered to us. We memorized the scriptures. But he was a bad dude before conversion. He was a murderer. And he, he arrested Christians. I mean, the words that described him. Even when he was converted and he became a Christian, the other Christians were like, they, they were afraid, you know. When he would come into a, a public assembly, like Barnabas and others had to assure them, no, he's the real deal. I know what he's done. I'm out of here, you know. So when you really understand Paul's past, it is amazing. And you know what that is? That's the power of grace, right? I can show you grace. Somebody can hurt my feelings or do something or steal from me. Uh, and... I can show grace, but the grace that I show cannot compare to the grace that God shows, right? especially for sinners. Um, it's, it's, a, it's another word. We talked about hope. Now we're talking about grace. Grace is another one of those powerful words that, that those five letters don't do it justice. Two, and this is an encouragement as well, basically saying in successful ministry, it's attainable to everyone. It's not an elite club. And I would say the same thing. I don't have a glorious past. I was an unbeliever for many years, probably still, and I think in my mind, I was an unbeliever still more of my life than I am a believer. Okay, so, you know, I don't deserve the salvation. I don't deserve to be up here. This church, you know, I don't deserve any of it. So I, I would say that um, I can amen to Paul. 
This isn't an elite club. We're not better than anybody else. This is what God offers. It's called grace. What God did in Paul's life was a success story. Now, this is a testimony from a respected leader to this young pastor to encourage him. And again, some see the pastor and think that, you know, we're up here and we're, we're, we're discerning the word and we're here every Sunday and all this stuff. And they have a bigger impression than what we really are. I've got news for you. I didn't come out of my mother's womb preaching the gospel. You can ask her. <laughs> I probably screamed, it's cold, get me a blanket. But definitely not preaching the gospel. Three, when Paul realized what he was doing was evil, and he was confronted with that truth of Christ, he repented. And I find that there are many, and, and I love this, there are, there's an older brother syndrome in the church. And I'm not saying our church, I think we're very accepting. I've seen that in action. But in, in general, in the church, there's an older brother syndrome. When we see the younger brother come in, the person who was a heroin addict, the person who was an alcoholic, the person who was a thief, the person who was in jail, the person tatted up and was in a biker gang, you know, let him in, man. And I often find that those that really come to grips to what type of sinner they were, they're on fire for the Lord. And, and I have to say, and this isn't, again, I'm, I really hate, I don't want to stereotype uh, paint with a broad brush, but there are some that really think in their mind that Jesus didn't have to do a lot to save them. There are some that in the church that are a little haughty, they're a little arrogant, they're a little older brotherish. They don't want to see the younger brother come back. That's a problem. I've always served you. Why are you doing so much for this guy? That's a great parable. That's a great parable. But the truth is that some have this attitude that maybe they were born in a Christian family and uh, they didn't do anything major, so maybe Jesus didn't have to work that hard. Be very, very careful with that. And be very, very careful of any of us looking down our nose on someone who comes in off the street who maybe has a jaded past. You know? I mean, if, if that was the case, then the Apostle Paul would have never broken into the, into the Christian community because they all would have shunned them. But somebody gave him a chance. I look at this as well with Paul. Number four, sacrifice. He had the world at his fingertips. If you read the scripture, you see that he, was, he went to the best schools. He had the best teachers. He was a Roman citizen. So even when they killed him, when they martyred him, they couldn't crucify him. It was against Roman law. They made it quick and painless, and they took the head off. Which, listen, nobody wants to die either one of those days, but if I had my choice, I would go with the latter, okay? So a Roman citizen had its benefits. He couldn't be beat by the Roman authorities being uncondemned, and he, he called that card once or twice. Uh, he was a brilliant man, educated in the law. He was from good pedigree, from good stock. He was a Pharisee. They were the who's who back then. They were part of the Sanhedrin. So really, when you put all the scriptures together, the Apostle Paul was willing to put everything on the line. How many of us are willing to do that? If we're making money and we're popular and a lot of people like us and, you know, this whole thing with Christianity comes around and you say, boy, I'm at a crossroads. I, I have a desire for the Lord. I have desire for those things, but, but it really could affect all this stuff that I've built over the last decades. Scary. Scary. But Paul put it all on the line to, to follow the Lord. And fifth, fifth, Paul was ultra-religious. He was ultra-religious prior to his conversion, and he was headed for hell. Religion does not save. He was a religious fanatic. He thought by uh, 
arresting these Christians and consenting to their deaths, that he was doing God a great favor, that they were trying to poison the faith. Okay, so let's say we have the truth, because we do, and someone is peddling false doctrine. We're not to beat them to the ground and you know, break their arm or try to kill them. What does that do? That's not, that's not the way of Christ. So Paul, in his zealous, in his, you know, he was zealous, he tried to kill them. He was a religious man. Relationship saves, not religion. Religion is just a bunch of things that we do to make us, ourselves feel better. Now, I want to make an oversimplification here that there are two types of people in the world, some overconfident and some underconfident. Let's look at it within the framework of Timothy. To the overconfident or the prideful, true ministry in serving God is really not as easy as it looks because it will always fail if it's based on natural ability and not a work of the Spirit. If we're not prayed up, if we're not accountable, if we're not employing servant leadership as Christ did, our ego will eventually be our demise, as it was for many opportunists in the early church. Right? Some of their names were in sacred scripture and, and, and not repenting. And what, where does that leave their historical legacy? To the underconfident, it's not as hard as it looks. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In this letter, in this time time period, it was meant to encourage and strengthen young Timothy. But the Holy Spirit in his infinite wisdom has given it to us as well. So I want to encourage everyone today that you can do it. You can do it. For the, to the underconfident, to those of you that have come in here and say, boy, I got a lot of baggage. Yeah, but Pastor Joe, you don't understand. I can sit with you all afternoon. You can tell me what a terrible person you are. But I read the Bible, and I know what it says about you, Right? And once you finish the Bible and you believe in the Bible, you'll realize that you are made just as perfect as he wanted to make you. And he can use every single person in this room, regardless of your limitations, your background, your culture. None of that stuff is in his way. So I just want to encourage you with that as we look at uh, how Paul encouraged Timothy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your blessing.